Hello, robots. It is remedial studies making its triumphant return in 2020. A new decade, a new remedial studies. This is Hannah, and I am here with my lovely co-host, Rachel. And today we're going to be bringing you our top five things from 2019. And I have never been happier to see the, the end of a decade or a year than I have been to see 2019 go. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's kind of where I'm at right now. 2019 was a bit of a trial. We say, I feel like we say this, Hannah, at the end of the last like four years. It's just been like <laughs> not great. Like important, <laughs> important character development things have happened. Important steps have been taken. Things have indeed been achieved, but by God, at what cost? I I know. This was the year it started out, I think, in March, where my partner was like, oh, you're going to get laid off because of crazy union stuff was like, you have to, like, you're going to have another job, but you have to interview and prepare for, like, eight different things. So, like, while you're doing your regular job. Mm-hmm. And so that was an adventure. And then he didn't get laid off, which was great. And then we had, I don't know, uh, <laughs> we've been trying to put um, the back door into the back of our house where there is no door. And that has been going on from May until it's still an open project. There's no door <laughs> in the oh back of God. our house. What else happened this year? Oh, right. And then my partner had to have emergency surgery. Mm-hmm. And then... I went on vacation and we came back from vacation and my mom had to change jobs and then she had to move and I broke my foot in the middle of all that. And that was part a big part of why we took the long hiatus is because my life literally imploded for about <laughs> I mean it's the truth. 6 months. <laughs> no, like, that is yeah, because I remember I was literally thinking about this. The last time you were at my house cuz it was the last time you played D&D was in the middle of July. And you had, like, just broken your foot. No, it was October. Was it? Yeah. My perception of time is fucked. So. I broke my foot in September, so it couldn't fit July. What the fuck happened in July? Why am I thinking it was July? Anyway, this year was so terrible. Apparently, my entire ability to compartmentalize what happened when has disintegrated. It was bad. Like, I know exactly what happened because a bad thing. A different bad thing happened every month. It really did. Like my <laughs> like my year was just kind of a general malaise. So it, there was no real big highs and no real low lows, which is kind of nice. But it still wasn't great. <laughs> I mean, I get. I think that gets old. Like that general. Blah yeah, exactly. It's very weird. I think that was it more than anything else. Is it? It's like. It's a remedial studies podcast. You want to talk about mental stuff. It's like when you 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 understand what your symptoms are and you're just bored. You're just bored of it and you're like, okay, this shit again. Can we please, can we please get off this ride? And that was like me the whole time is just continuously saying, can I please get off this ride in the same boring mo- monotone? <laughs> <laughs> That's very Daria of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put it on a shirt. That's me. That's very Daria of you. (laughs) 
I'm just hoping for, like, peace and serenity in 2020. Mm-hmm. But it's not gonna happen. Oh, it's no, it's fucking not. not. It's fucking not. But you know what? We can hope. My mom has this thing. She calls... This is gonna not make any sense for anybody who does not follow the NFL, especially Ohio teams. <laughs> um, but my oh, mom no. has a thing where she calls the Cleveland Browns opening day the day of eternal hope. <laughs> and I feel like that's the, the turning over of the new year for so many people. It's just, you know, nothing is probably going to change, but you can hope. And that hope is what keeps you going. Yeah. There's some things going on, like where I'm going to let you guys know right now, like we're probably going to have to take another hiatus. It's just how it is. But I mean, I would like to as much as possible get back into making things Mm -hmm. and Rachel and I have talked about because recording it can be particularly difficult for me in my life right now that we might expand into some written pieces or or some some other stuff so remedial studies is probably just going to expand in the formats that it offers you Um, even if maybe we're not doing recording audio files for you as often but we're gonna try. <laughs> yeah, we are. We're gonna try, and y'all are just gonna have to be satisfied with the attempt at this point. <laughs> I know that's probably not what you want to hear, but you know what? That's just where we're at at this point. It's that we've said it since the beginning of the show. We make things for free on the internet, and sometimes when you make things for free on the internet, it just has to work to your schedule. Yeah. As unforgiving as those schedules can be. <sighs> yes, but I'm we're gonna make the effort like never fear (laughs) an attempt will be made (laughs) an attempt will be made will we probably feel like the dog in the this is fine comic most of the most of that time probably but we're still gonna do it because we want to do it and what is the point of life if you don't do things you want to do so exactly there you go on that note (laughs) do you think it's time that we talked about our five things from 2019 It's the third annual. This Ooh. is the third episode, one of these episodes we've made. Because if you're new to the show, we do a wrap-up episode uh, every year. Our first one was in 2017, which was the December after we started the show. And uh, then we had one last year in 2018. Uh, so this is the third one of these we've made. That's crazy. Yeah, it'll probably go live in 2020. Probably. But it'll be for this year. It'll be for this year in spirit. Yeah, we're recording on the 28th. So, still technically 2019. That would be quite a feat if we caught it out in 2019. It's not happening. No. (laughs) I'm traveling tomorrow and Monday. Yeah. So it's not happening. Who wants to go first? Rachel, why don't you go first? I'll go first. All right. So uh, in our little mini production meeting we had, I, I uh, so provide some overall context for the stuff that I consumed this year. There's no books on this list because I, I don't know why. I just couldn't fucking read for the longest time, except for one book, which I probably will write something about so I won't spoil anything. But it's, it was a year where I, I ended up listening to a lot more music than usual. I watched more TV, and I played a lot more video games, so that's kind of where I'm going to be coming at. But the first one feels almost like a follow-up, because we did an episode on the EP that preceded this album, but it's uh, Hozier's Wasteland Baby. Ooh. And 
I re-listened to it the other day, and Hollister just makes music that I feel like I'm in some sort of more, and, like, maybe there's a vaguely roguish romantic lead that's coming for me, but it's somehow also ethereal and but also weirdly visceral in its sexuality (laughs) and like i just like hosier like i realized that like in listening to the album because i I hadn't listened i hadn't listened to more of his music in a very long time and i realized how much i like this album when i went back and i listened to it and i could listen to it all the way through without skipping a song which is like my my adhd benchmark for if i really like an album is can i listen to it without getting impatient for, like, the songs that I really want to hear. And that's kind of how I felt about this. And also, like, he's just a- he's just good. He's just a good songwriter. I still am kind of floored by this one song called Talk, which is unreliable narration at its finest, where it's this dude who's so clearly just trying to get with whoever he's talking to. And, like, the whole chorus is about this. This is not me reading deeply into something. But there's this one line where it's, I'd be the let the- the last shred of truth in the lost myth of true love and i'm like (laughs) andrew you can't be making songs about assholes who don't mean shit and then like put that in there i'm gonna i'm gonna need you to stop but the thing like overall that i think really kind of spoke to me about this album is that it is unironically joyful in so many parts and i think he's talked about this in interviews about like the choice to call it wasteland baby is we've sort of moved into a, a, a subset of nihilism that is <laughs> op- optimistic instead of really, uh, I guess, pessimistic. And yeah. even though that is, in a weird way, horrifying, I also think it's it's almost one of the only ways you can really deal with the state of the world that we're in <laughs> without going completely insane. Yeah. I reject your grim dark. Please give me solar punk. Yes. I am done. <laughs> give me hope punk and solar punk and all the punks. I think that was one of the, that was, I think, the main reason that this album kind of stuck with me for most of the year was that, first of all, it's just good. And second, like, it, it's this really earnest body of work that just wants to exist. And I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. It's time for my first pick. Yes. Which is, uh, I went with The Good Place. An excellent decision. I am partway through the third season right now. Part of why I didn't finish it is because my foot got better. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think the first two seasons, I had a little bit of trouble with the third season too. I don't know if it was because I was getting restless or like, I just feel like there's something about, in particular, the first season is like perfect. Like, there's this inflection point, and, like, it's still good after that inflection point, Mm -hmm. but, like, mm, I don't know. There's an inflection point, and it's important, and everything up until that inflection point is perfect. I don't know what it was. It was, like, moral philosophy can be fun and also silly, but also this is very, very serious. Because I think sometimes, like, the work of moral philosophy feels very abstract and, like not relevant to our day-to-day lives and the show made it feel relevant like these people these old dead white men were trying to i think they say in the show like 
how to treat each other. Like, how should we be treating each other? How to be good to other people? And that really resonated with me, especially as I'm lying in in bed, (laughs) kind of high on opiates while I'm recovering (laughs) from my from having broken my foot i think the thing that appeals to me about the good place i still have to watch it is it, it's a show where you can tell even just like the bits i've seen and what i've read of it like you can tell the people who make it really are interested in like the the, the ethics and philosophy that inform the narrative and it's not like a shtick no, it's not. It really drives a lot of what is going on because, like, this is a fundamental question of, like, what does it mean to be a good person? And I think that's something we wrestle with on this show <laughs> and in our own lives. As much as it's kind of become a meme, the there is no ethical consumption under capitalism is like a big thing that i've seen addressed in the show but in a way that's not like you're a bad person if you drink almond milk (laughs) (laughs) which i appreciate because my lactose intolerant ass has to drink almond milk but it, it seems like a show that is just very much sort of secure in a way in its own idea and i really like i read it and this was a long time ago but I read an interview with the person who was like one of the uh, writers and executive producers where they made the show with an endpoint in mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something American TV does not do enough of. Yes. Where it's almost like, and it is for the most part, about how much can we squeeze out of this, both narratively and money-wise. And to have someone be like, no, we have a story and this is going to be the story and this is the end, I think almost always makes for more consistent narratives and more yeah just more more consistency because i'm gonna make like a whole school of criticism about why you can pretty much point to everything wrong with how we think about tv from how long supernatural's been on is that still didn't that end i think it may have finally ended the evil may finally be defeated but the fact that that show was on for like 13 or 14 years when it had no business People watched it and people gave it money and like, yeah, if you really like Supernatural, like, I don't care. But it's, I I think it's just this weird way we think about that particular medium Mm -hmm. where things just keep going because they can. And to have a group of creators be like, we have a story and this is going to be it is, I think, a, a, a much more more conducive way to create. And more sustainable too. I think there's been some pushback against that supernatural like phenomenon where it just goes on for two, forever because didn't there was a cartoon that ended that everyone liked that I don't know anything about other than it kind of pinged Crimson Peak for me because they're out in the woods and uh, and there's like a grandpa with a fez oh gravity falls gravity falls thanks <laughs> <laughs> but they talked about, I think, having a set end. Yeah, um, Alex Hirsch, who was the creator, I actually watched all of Gravity Falls. I have something to say about this. He said kind of the same thing where he was like, this was always going to be the story. And I think that's one of the reasons Gravity Falls is so good. And I do think it is a very good show. It knew what it was. And I think that is ultimately kind of the 
good thing about that writing model is you don't have to worry about continuously making up new stuff. You don't have to worry about reinventing yourself and, and all that stuff. You can just kind of be what, what you are. And I like that that is a thing that is becoming more consistent in audio drama and, and stuff like that. I know um Jonathan Sims, who writes... I love how I talk about him like he's my friend. My friend Johnny Sims, who writes the Magnus Archives. <laughs> he has said, even though it's still going to be like 200 episodes, like there was always going to be a story. I think if you're writing in any medium, I think that that makes for much more sustainable storytelling, like you said, which helps make better stories. Yeah, it does. All right. Choice number two. All right. This is going to be my second album. And I talked about this. Everyone talked about this. I couldn't let... This was the one of the only fucking bright spots in this year. Is <laughs> gonna be Lizzo. Because I love you. Oh. Bruh. This album was my entire dose of serotonin this year. <laughs> like, it was just... <laughs> and, and, you know, people talk... A lot of people have talked about Lizzo in the past year. And my whole thing with Lizzo is I appreciate that there is a person out there who as a woman of color as a fat woman of color is exactly who she is does not give a single fuck and is killing it yeah and i i appreciate that and she's like fucking good yeah like people (laughs) i i think for a while maybe people thought it was kind of like she has two songs and that's it this whole fucking album is a banger it's so good don't call it a comeback. This is like her third studio album. That's one of the things that's kind of funny to me that she got nominated for Best New Artist when she's been putting out music for eight years. But it's also kind of a story that that goes against the typical overnight success story. Mm-hmm. That isn't really a thing that happens. No, most overnight successes are not actually overnight at all. Like, there are people who have been on their grind for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And years. And and Lizzo is one of them. And, and I, I just, every time I, like, experience anything with her, I feel this sense of just joy. And I I, I think that that's something that is, is a bit rare to find. It, it, that's not necessarily limited to, like, music or anything like that. I think when, when I was thinking back about, like, well, what were my top things this year, I really wanted to find things that... It's going to sound dramatic, but that, like, made me keep going Mm -hmm. because we live in a world that can make this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And this album kind of was that for me where it's, I'm like, I am glad to be sharing a planet with Lizzo. Yes, definitely. No, I have a, um, (laughs) I have a playlist that I made myself called and this is going to be very revealing, but I want you all to love and accept me anyway. I'm so ready. Called Just Girl Things. <laughs> I think I follow that playlist on your Spotify. <laughs> and it's like a lot of Lizzo, a lot of Carly Rae, a lot of, um, I'm going to mispronounce her name, but Haley Kyoko? Kyoko? Yes. I don't know if I also mispronounced her name, so I'm a terrible reference for that so uh yeah that that should tell you where i made it just this year to like be my pump up (laughs) it's my pump up playlist (laughs) i love that so yeah i'm 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 right there with you because i first came into contact with lizzo like many not many 
I think it was many years ago because I'm remembering the office building I was in <laughs> when I when I heard that. So it has to have been like at least three, maybe four mm-hmm. years um, since I first heard and like loved Good as Hell, that single. Yeah, I think my, that was my first introduction to Lizzo as well. And I think it was at least two years ago. Yeah, and she really should have broken it big uh, with that album. I think there's a song on the album about, like, losing your phone and how in, at the end of the song she's like, oh, it's in my hand this whole time. <laughs> I love Lizzo. <laughs> and, like, that's a whole mood. It's a whole mood. She makes songs for the masses. Yeah, so I support your I support your choice. <laughs> Thank you. But, yeah, I, I don't really have anything deeper to say about that other than just, like, I appreciate that it is... Uh, I also appreciate her in her Instagram handle, which is Lizzo B eating, and because uh, that's a whole mood. <laughs> I love that. That works on so I many levels. Um, I know, right? But I just, yeah, I do, I just love her. She doesn't give a shit. On a more serious note, I think one of the things that really kind of I say touched me, but that is kind of the truth about her this year was I watched her Glastonbury performance. And there's a point in between, I think she was singing Truth Hurts, and then she was going to go into Good as Hell, and it was the end of the show. And she was like, you know, can I, I'm going to lead you guys in a mantra, just go with me on this. And at some point, she said, if you can love me, then you damn well can love yourself. And for some reason, that has just stuck with me from, like, the rest of the year. Because <laughs> there is that whole, like, weird narrative where it's like, well, you can't really love somebody until you love yourself, which is bullshit. Um, and <laughs> it's, a, it's a bad YA plot device. Like, that's just it. I was really kind of floored by that whole idea of the capacity. If you have the capacity to love anything, you can love yourself. Yeah. And that is that whole idea of accepting yourself and loving yourself and celebrating yourself is such a big thing in her music. That to hear it kind of put into a very, like, no no pulled punches, like, statement in front of a giant festival crowd. <laughs> it really affected me. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my second choice. <sighs> it's a tough act to follow, but I'm going to try. I believe in you. I revisited Avatar The Last Airbender <gasps> this year. Um, a show that we reference, I think every other episode of this show probably every other episode i am re-watching it on a piecemeal basis uh with with my boyfriend partner and getting to re-watch avatar the last airbender with someone who has never seen it before <gasps> i know no way <laughs> it's been like profoundly magical because like we're watching episodes and like he'll look at me and be like is are they really sending this like what is he like 10 at the start of the he's show? like 10 or 11 and he's like are they are these adults really gonna send this 11 year old out to deal with this like p- panda demon <laughs> 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 like he's 11 I feel like re-watching Avatar The Last Airbender as an adult, that is most of my attitude, is what are these kids doing? <laughs> I know. We haven't made it through the Book of Water yet. But uh, we're right about the time where they're about to hit the North Pole, and uh, 
I think we just did the Pirates episode. Okay. And, like, on the one hand, like, there's a lot of wacky hijinks in the show, but there's also points where I, like, look over and he's, like, getting really emotional and I'm getting really emotional and we're just, like, Nickelodeon, you didn't have to come for my whole being like that. I mean, I think that's really the cartoon that showed me what animation, like, could be. I grew up on a steady diet of, like, Rugrats and All Real Monsters and even, like, Hey Arnold, but, like, the potential for a show to have a narrative arc first and to have character development and also the emotional gravity that it could have was just, like, there are some episodes of Hey Arnold, I think, in particular... But you don't get that out of, like, Spongebob or the Angry Beavers or Cat Dog. <laughs> and, like, those shows are great, but, like, I guess it was, like, this is what kids programming can be if we let it. I, I agree with that. But, yeah, I don't know. Just getting to revisit something I watched is probably, like, what, a 12 or 13-year-old? And, like, seeing it as an adult, like, 10 or 15 years later has been an adventure that I'm I'm really enjoying and getting to watch it with someone who hasn't seen it before. Like, if you can find someone. <laughs> <laughs> find someone. That's the Craigslist posting that we need to be making. Uh, I need someone who's never seen Avatar The Last Airbender before to watch it, to do a rewatch with me. And I will provide snacks. And you will provide the childlike wonder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think there is, even though I've only watched Avatar all the way through once, I really think it is a benchmark for so many people our age as for what animation is capable of when you don't talk down to its primary audience. And uh, there's so many, like, iconic moments. And most of them have to honestly do with fucking Zuko. Yes. Who is, in my mind, like, one of my top five characters of all time. Yeah. He's he's my golden standard for how you should actually do redemption arcs. It, this is going to be a little petty, but it just bugs me when people are like, oh, this person's like Zuko. Bitch. <laughs> you don't understand how high that bar is. You can't just throw that around. Like you said, it's a show that has a a good emotional weight to it that I think before a lot of people probably didn't think could work as children's television. And I think a lot of my favorite media, media from that sort of era of my life that has stuck with me has been stuff that doesn't talk down to kids. Avatar is a great example of that. The series of Unfortunate Events books are a good example of that as as well. Just having respect for your audience and understanding that, like, like kids understand a lot more than we give them credit for, for the most part. Like, I, I have realized that as a quasi-adult, that a lot of people, probably because they're being protective, for the most part, think their kids can't make those, like, emotional connections and leaps. But, like, we fucking did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, Avatar's just so fucking good. Like, it, there's so many good character moments, and it has, like, so many satisfying arcs. I haven't even started talking about Azula, who I won't get into because I'll be here for 20 minutes, and 
how much I love her as, as a villain and as, as a really good benchmark for how good negative character development can be. But it is, it's just a very well-crafted show. And I'm so glad that you're being able to see a person experience it for the first time. Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty, it's been good. I'm excited to move into some of the later pieces of the, of the show. Especially, I think the end of Book One Water is going to be, it's going to be tough, but we'll get through it, so. I think my favorite book is the Book of Earth, because of all the shit that goes down in Ba Sing Se, and, like, one of the best individual achievements in animation, which is, like, the episode that's all the stories. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which I won't talk about, because I'll get emotional, <laughs> but, um, and Uncle Iroh. Uncle, just uh, Uncle Iroh's everything. Yeah, hashtag the uncle we deserve. <laughs> For real. All right, are you ready for choice number three? I think I'm ready. This My next two are very late additions. It's stuff I only discovered this month, which shows you how the year went. This show, um, this is a call-out post for Matt Ligetti to come into our DMs and yell at me about this show, because I need someone to talk to about it, <laughs> is The Witcher, which just started on Netflix uh, back on the 20th. Um, I had a, a precursory knowledge of some of the stuff because I knew the video games. I hadn't played them. It's one of those things. I am a hoarder because I'll buy things in the Steam summer sale and been like, I'll play that eventually. And that was sort of how the, the Witcher series has been for me. But I knew enough about it that I like new characters and things. But the show is based on the books. Narratively, it's interesting because it's based on not novels, but it's based on two short story collections that predate a lot of the big, like, epic fantasy novel-y stuff. And I was really impressed with the show because it, it focuses on three main characters, Geralt, who is the Witcher, Yennefer, who becomes his main love interest but has her own story for the vast majority of the show, and Ciri, who's a princess who has to, like, flee this flee her kingdom because everyone fucking dies because she's a princess and that's what happens it displaces you in time in a way that you don't realize is happening until like the third episode when you see these people that Geralt is dealing with in real time well i say his his version of real time but in yennefer's story those people are children and you sort of realize okay how far back are these two are the adults and when are they going to meet up with siri because the whole big overarching plot of the first season is it starts at the end and like the i should have realized this the episode's fucking called the end's beginning but (laughs) the end of the show is the first episode where the kingdom is sacked and the queen dies and siri has to run away and like her story proceeds in in real time but then we get the whole backstory of why Geralt wants to find Siri, why Yennefer wants to find Geralt, and like all all this other stuff. And it is the only show that has a subplot about a woman trying to have a baby that didn't tilt me off the face of the planet. <laughs> a difficult task. It is a very difficult task. And I think part of it is because it was created by a woman. So it, it felt more related because a lot of the things is like, oh, I am infertile and I am a monster. And that's like kind of it. <laughs> don't like that (laughs) i don't like that but in in the show what happens is yennefer is born 
with horrible, horrible scoliosis. She's got a really busted jaw and she just has this deep-seated self-hatred that sort of came from how she was treated by her family as a child. Like, her introduction to the show is literally her father selling her to this magic school for less money than he would sell, like, one of his pigs. And that act and the idea of what you are worth follows her throughout the show and when you ascend as a mage which Yennefer is you go through this process called enchantment where you can kind of look however you want to look and in the whole magic comes at a price thing she will not be able to have children after this process which at the time because she wants to be beautiful and she wants to have power she readily agrees to and then like 30 years pass and she's like well that shit wasn't worth it (laughs) her ideas of what constitutes power change over the course of her arc that being like i want back something that's more tangible and real yeah made more sense than just oh i'm a monster blah 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 she doesn't think she's horrifying because of this thing that happened to her. She's just, she's like, I gave up this thing and I didn't understand what I was giving up and what I was getting. Yeah, for the ineffectual <laughs> implementation of this post, or this trope, please see uh, Black Widow in Age of Ultron oh, and don't talk to me. me s- <laughs> don't fucking talk to me. I get so angry because I was kind of scared. I was kind of scared when I saw them like, oh, they're going to remove her uterus or something. Okay. It ended up not being terrible, which I was very appreciative of. It was still kind of hammered in, but in a way that I I could forgive. Sometimes the best you can hope for. Because the whole thing of child children and parents is a big thing throughout the whole show. Because Geralt, his mom gave him up so he could be a witcher. Ciri doesn't have parents anymore. Like, all this other stuff. So in a way, it was still a bit ham-fisted. But in a way that didn't make me just immediately rage quit. <laughs> It is also, I will say, one of the best choreographed shows I've ever seen as far as, like, the fights. Mm-hmm. Like, the way they kind of designed the way Geralt fights, which I will give a shout out to Henry Cavill, who refused to stunt double on this production because he wanted to be able to do it all himself. <laughs> and I'm like, you're just living your nerd best life. <laughs> like, and he is a fucking nerd. He almost missed the call he was Superman because he was playing World of Warcraft. Like, I mean, this is the kind of person I want in this production. But it's very heartfelt in a way that I wasn't expecting. In that, like, it it's it sells you on being like a Game of Thrones spin-off. And then it's like alternatively like a romance and a and a I need to find my kid and it's a buddy comedy at some points. And it's just, it's really enjoyable. And I needed that this month. Yeah. I needed something enjoyable. For sure. Yeah. No, because I've heard that people are like, oh, thank God that there's not so much violence against women (laughs) in The Witcher. I'm like, oh, good. I might actually be able to watch this. (laughs) Yeah. And that's like a thing. Like, I've started listening to some of the short stories and I started playing Witcher 3. Mm Mm-hmm. Richard Three Wild Hunt. And like that's pretty consistent in the narrative is Geralt's kinda like, Can we not? Can you guys you can just choose not to rape people, guys. Do you know that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, my standards are so low, but finally a man is not tripping on them. So yeah. So that's my third choice. 
Excellent. Excellent. Okay, I'm going to hit you with our first book, which is a little bit out of character for us, but I think 2019 was just not a year of being able to pay attention to things for long periods mm. of time. Um, and this is actually a short novel called Ghost Wall Ooh. by Sarah Moss. And it is about, um, I believe, I might mess this up because I read it really early in the year, but there is a family, um, and the dad is like an amateur scholar of the Roman Empire in Britain, and they go out to Hadrian's Wall Mm. to live in a camp run by a university professor where they're going to do, like, historical reenactment type things in the name of anthropological research. So they're going to actually test out, like, some things they think that people who lived in the old, old, olden times, like the time that Hadrian's Wall was erected, Mm -hmm. how they might have lived. And so, like, they live in, like, a hut, and they're wearing, like, scratchy, like, sacks, And they have to, like, hunt and gather. It's really interesting because there are some, like, students from the university who are a little bit older than our main character, who's the daughter of this this guy, Mm -hmm. and it's told from her perspective. And it's very much about, like, that father-daughter relationship. And there's, like, something rotten in the state of Denmark, but, of course, the mother and the daughter are, like, completely in denial about it. And they're like, as long as we act a certain way, everything will be fine. And I don't want to ruin too much, but basically, like, it escalates and escalates, but in a very quiet, quiet way. And, like, the ending just blew me, just blew me away. Like, it was, it was very intense. And, like, there's a sudden break in tension at the end. Mm Mm-hmm. I just, I can't explain it without giving it away. (laughs) I want to read it now, And this is, like, a... (laughs) It's like, I'm doing spoiler, this is a spoiler-free episode, for the most part, because I want you guys to read it, because eventually we might do a show about it, I don't know, because um, it's just short, and it's it's very, like, literary, but in a very approachable way. Ooh, then I'll probably like it. Yeah, and it, it was really good, and it's sort of like, I don't know how to explain it, but there's like this intersection between the past and the present. There are those questions about authenticity that I like to to explore. The perspective of being like a younger, like a high school age girl hanging out around uh, hanging out around college students in this very strange context. Because <laughs> it's very it's a very bizarre scenario, right? To be yeah. a modern family who's like for vacation we will drive a couple hours away and pretend that we live. And like ye olden days, just short of the Stone Age. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what exactly that time period is, but it's really bizarre. And it's sort of like how the land is sort of like vaguely haunted in a weird way. It's very weird, but very good. So I guess that's all I'll say about that because I don't, I don't know how to talk about it without giving it away. That does um, the whole idea of like age. And how it sounds like it's working in that book sounds really cool because I still think about a very brief story. So I've always found it interesting as a person who is very interested in how different literary movements have manifested in different areas of the world. When we think about the Gothic and Romanticism and stuff, 
how that was manifesting in Europe versus America and how a lot of things that are scary in America have to do with how old things are. But in like Britain, they're like, we just got this. Yes, it's 150 years old. We still just got this. And how things in in England are scary because they're old, but things in America are scary because they're big. And I was talking about that with my mom when we were we were on a cruise that was uh, one of the stops we made. We could take a bus up to London and do like a tour for the day. So we were doing that. And my father had never been to Northern Europe. He had been, we had gone to like Italy and Spain and stuff like that, but he'd never been to like Northern Europe. And on the bus, you on the road into London, you drive past like 2,000 year old pieces of wall that were there when london was first like not even when it was london it was just like the town on the river that people lived in and we don't have stuff like that in america when i think of like american horror it's always like the midwest gothic that people kind of make fun of where it's just the empty fields of corn and soybeans and like how you can drive for hours and hours and hours across the middle of the country and never see another car (laughs) the idea that you are in a land that has and we are too in america like to be clear like we have thousands of years of history in america we just don't know it because thank you andrew jackson but to be in a place that has documented thousands of years of history it makes my brain tingle to be like you're stepping on the same earth as like people from 2000 years ago even though like obviously humanity's been around longer than that but to like be able to have something is like a point to be like i am staring at the same wall a person from thousands of years ago would have stared at like there's something about that to me that is so weirdly visceral that i it sounds like i would really enjoy how it's being used in the book yeah i think i think so that sounds right mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say be careful if you, and this is generally to our listeners, be careful if you have any triggers around abuse, especially familial abuse. I mean, I think I hinted at that, but just be careful. Practice self-care and all that stuff. Yes. All right. Is it my turn? Yes. All right. So this is another late edition. I feel like I'm very late to the train on this, but we'll see. And it is my number four pick is going to be Six, the musical by Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss, who are both younger than us, and it freaks me out. (laughs) But Six, the musical is a 75-minute show about the wives of Henry VIII putting on a pop concert to decide who's going to be the lead singer of the group. And... (laughs) What? Yes. (laughs) It is delightful it is so good because and this is not really a spoiler listen to it on spotify but it is a show that over the course of the show asks the question why do we remember these women and why and what are we remembering them for and how is that really kind of fucked up (laughs) and i'm into it. it it it's it's a show people everybody wants fucking everything to be the new hamilton (laughs) let hamilton be hamilton let other things be other things fuck why isn't hamilton the new 1776 riddle me that twitter but um in any case it's it's a show that really takes pains to 
uh, humanize the women it's it's meant to be betraying. It's midway between like a historical review and also a historical retelling because they dress in like pop concert outfits and they sing pop music and there's like sick beats and one song about Anna of Cleves and it's like a whole thing <laughs> but it's it's designed to be I think it's designed to be empowering but it's the whole thing of like it's almost an interrogation of how we read historical records about women especially like famous women like royalty and stuff like that and while i am i am not a royalist by any stretch of the imagination i do think it is it is poetic to me that a man who who would be so fucking angry that the only thing he's really remembered for is the women he married i just really enjoy how angry he would be at this show because <laughs> at some point in the end they're just like i don't we don't need him why do why why do we need to be remembered by by who we married? Like that's not the whole story. And there's one song near the end that sort of Catherine Parr, I think, is the wife who's singing, sort of asks like, why is this story the story we have to tell? Oof. And I think that's an interesting idea to apply to a lot of how how we view history, especially how we view not just women, of course, but other um, marginalized groups. Also, it's uh, the music's good. The music is very good. It's a bit silly. They all kind of follow a similar arc, like a lot of the songs, where they'll be, it's silly until it's not. And Catherine Howard's song is pretty similar, where she was beheaded for alleged promiscuities outside of wedlock. I think for a long time she's been kind of seen as, like, the good time girl and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, here's the thing, though. She was, like, 13. Because <laughs> I really think that's kind of where the trope of the dirty old medieval dudes marrying 17-year-olds came from. And, like, co- the contemporaries were like, Henry, are you uh, are you sure about that? <laughs> that's kind of weird, bro. Her song is a lot about how we, especially how, how we portray women who in our modern parlance we would see as essentially abused children right i think that's one of the things thematically and like writing wise i really like about the show is that it it's it is silly and it's fun and it's designed to kind of leave you feeling better at the end but it doesn't shy away from how unforgiving the historical record can be to women right (laughs) (laughs) which is exactly it's that was like my my big thing I've been into, like, the past month or so. Yeah, that sounds good. You said, like, the premise, and I was like, excuse? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? It's really, it's really good. I enjoyed it a lot. Are you ready for my fourth choice? I am. And I just realized I messed, like, Ghost Wall all up, but that's fine. Just know that you it's know good. You know what? It's fine. But for my fourth choice, we're not looking back anymore. 2020, here we come. Mm-hmm. My my fourth choice is uh, Once Upon a River by Diane Sutterfield, and it takes place, I'm not sure the exact time, but there are old-timey cameras, which I think is a pretty good marker. So, like, 1910s? Sounds right. But basically, the book opens, there's a girl... A little girl is pulled from the river Thames. Is it Thames? Thames? Uh, Thames. I I say Thames. I have no idea if that's correct or not. I think it's right, because I was going to say Thames, and that is incredibly wrong. No. (laughs) 
How very American of you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's a little girl pulled from the River Thames, and she is presumed dead, drowned. She is brought into this inn, which has been on the river for many hundreds of years. They think she's dead, and they don't know whose daughter she is. She comes in. There's a man they, they pull from the river, and he turns out to be, like, a famous photographer. I th- I think he's a real person, but I'm not sure. Or he's based on a real person. But basically, after a few hours, the girl mysteriously, quote-unquote, comes back to life. Um, but she's mute. Okay. She's, like, three or four years old. And, and what happened, presumably, because the characters try to figure this out, and most people assume a miracle because it's like 1910. But there are times oh, yeah. there are times where your heart rate can go so low that you can't really detect it. And that happens sometimes where people would like bury people and then mm-hmm. they would end up digging them up later and they would like have clawed the top of their coffins because they had woken up and tried to get out. <laughs> that's where that's where the name graveyard shift comes from. Yeah, I think it got so bad that the Victorians were like, put a bell <laughs> yeah, in so I can ring it if there's a problem. If I'm not really dead. But anyway, she kind of, <laughs> she comes back to life. And they are trying to figure out who this is. Because the little girl is mute and is sort of a little bit vacant. And like, they can't tell like whose daughter it is. And like three separate people come forward and are like that's my daughter (laughs) so the whole rest of the book is spent figuring out basically the provenance of this child (laughs) (laughs) and it's very good and it talks a lot about like about like mortality and when is it your time to go and, and what does that feel like and also about the shape of stories which i enjoy in a piece of fiction. I think Atonement does that a lot. Talks about like what shape a story should be. While it is making a story that shape. This is not the same shape story as Atonement. But it is very good. And if you like historical fiction. I uh, highly, highly recommend it. All your recommendations sound really good, Hannah. You're going to get me back into reading in 2020. I'm going to call that now. Oh, hopefully. It's going to be good. I hope so. Well, you know me. I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, but I still call it reading because it's all the same material. It is. It is. Librarian approved. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm validated. Yeah. You have my blessing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Are we ready for the final yes. round? Woo. Yeah. All right. So for my last thing, I decided to go with the media entity that has loomed the largest over my life in 2019 that quite literally was my whole summer and a lot of my fall and that is the dragon age series by bioware it is a series of three video games that i was just neck deep in for like three months and it is honestly the best narrative experience i've ever had playing a video game dragon age 4 when bioware i am now joined the throngs of people who are impatiently waiting (laughs) but my experience with dragon age started when dragon age inquisition came out which i believe was in 2015 
Um, and it was the third one, and I, it was the first game I had ever seen specifically made for PC. It's available on console, but I always, a lot of the people I knew played it on PC. And where I was like, I need it. I need to do that. And then uh, many years passed, and I didn't do that. And then this year came, and I um, was able to get a much better gaming computer for Christmas. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I can play all these games I wanted to play, but when I had a really shitty computer. So this Dragon Age series is a, is a, is a trilogy of three games. Dragon Age Origins, where you play a character called the Warden. Dragon Age 2, where you play a either male or female version of someone named Hawk, who I'll get into that in a second. And the third game, Dragon Age Inquisition. The really cool thing that the series does and it, it's, it was designed to do this. It's a role-playing game in a very real sense that your choices will change the world of later games. So in Origins, depending on what choices you make, who you romance, that will change your main character's experience of Dragon Age 2. The choices you make in Dragon Age 2 will change how your Inquisitor experiences Dragon Age Inquisition. And it was one of those games that was, it rewarded thinking really carefully about what you were going to do. There's a narrative break point, I think, in in each game where you have to make the big decision that will impact everything in the game. In the first game, it's been out for 10 years, um, but in the first game, uh, your warden has to decide whether to kill or spare a man named Loghain Mactir, who is, uh, depending on how you look at it, the real king of Thedas or usurper to the throne. And whether you decide to kill him or not will affect the way the entire rest of the game is played. And a lot of what happens in Dragon Age Inquisition and so on and so forth. A lot of people don't like Dragon Age too, and I take some umbrage with that, but that is its own episode. <laughs> but it's... It's a companion-based RPG, so you meet all these very fun characters, and then you can smooch them, which I always appreciate in a video <laughs> game. It's a fantasy dating sim, essentially. But there's... And, and like any other big major thing, like it's got concerning narrative elements at times, but it is largely concerned with this long conflict between mages and templars who Templars work for the for the Chantry, which is the which is fantasy Catholicism, and the fantasy Catholics don't like magic. <laughs> Do the fantasy Catholics ever like magic? No, they don't. <laughs> they don't ever like magic. <laughs> it's a trope at this point that fantasy Catholics don't like magic, but I'm still kind of into it. But it, it's this wonderful sort of immersive world that you can really just kind of get lost in. And I, I almost appreciate, I get why people don't like it, but I, I appreciate how the series goes from kind of medium where you're kind of in the country, you know, you're, yeah, you're on the country continent of Thetis. Yeah. The continent is Thetis. The country is something which, fuck, I played this game for like three months straight. Why don't I remember what this shitty country is called? Anyway, I'll remember it in the dead of night and scream about it on Twitter, but you're sort of in that, country for most of dragon age origins and then you're in you're on a whole other part of the continent but you stay in one city for dragon age 2 where you see like the beginning of the big mage rebellion kind of happens if you play a mage you get to kind of be more involved and it's super cool 
and then Dragon Age Inquisition is about the whole continent and like this big, huge threat that basically the whole world faces that you as the Inquisitor are tasked with, you know, fixing. It's one of those stories that I I was so glad I hadn't done more research on it when it came out because I knew fucking nothing. I knew nothing the whole time. I had like three people shit you not every day asking me where I was and what my reactions were and, and stuff like that because it, it was such a huge thing for so many people that it's it's a big touchstone of the genre for role-playing games and what um, especially with Inquisition, what they're capable of being. I'm really disappointed they haven't come out with Dragon Age 4 yet because <laughs> I need it. I need I need resolution. Yes. And I need to know how the decisions I've made will continue to affect the world because that's one of the things that lends it really well to replaying is you can make different choices. You can make different wardens and hawks and inquisitors and romance different people. Like I've got like fucking three people going in Inquisition right now because I'm like, I must romance all the people <laughs> and make all the choices and see what happens. And that I that I think is, to me, almost like how I I have a sort of mini standard in my head that is almost hard to voice. If I can listen to an album all the way through without skipping a song, if I can reread things, rewatch movies, never kind of give up on a TV show, <laughs> and if I can replay a video games and find the same amount of joy in them multiple times, that's sort of my benchmark for what I consider for my own standards what a good thing is like to me having something that lends itself to multiple stages of consumption yes is is one of my kind of benchmarks that's a good for benchmark what makes something good like as much as i really appreciate games that like you play once and you're done and you're like oh that was good like that doesn't necessarily mean things aren't good it's just one of those things where i'm like that'll push it over the edge yeah it actually got me back into writing, believe it or not. I was writing a lot of fan fiction for a while. Hey, that's <laughs> about great. main characters and the different <laughs> romance options. So it's good. I also enjoy, this is my last point on this, uh, the guy who was the main writer, I believe just for the first game, and he wrote a lot of tie-in novels when he was still working for Bioware. Many of, of ye internet grandparents will remember a site called Live Journal, where there was many a kink meme Oh, God. <laughs> he went on the Dragon Age kink meme and would fill prompts. Oh, my anonymously, God. And then would oh go on Twitter God. and be like, so I just did that. Good luck finding it. <laughs> what a That's fucking banana. legend. What a power move. Someone <laughs> out there has canon Dragon Age stuff from the kink meme. I can't believe God. And you know, I think I think that's where that's where my list is gonna end. <laughs> excellent, excellent choices. So my last pick is kind of weird, but I love kind of weird. We're gonna go for it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I wanna talk about a community art project called Rita's Quilt that was started by Badass Cross Stitch on Instagram, who is Shannon Downey in real life and what shannon downey does is she goes to estate sales and she buys unfinished sewing projects and then she finishes them so that that person's soul can sort of rest she is also an activist and she does that through making artwork 
embroidery with very feminist uh, messaging. (laughs) And so she went to an estate sale. She saw on the wall someone had embroidered a map of the United States with some of the state birds and flowers on it. And uh, she plucked it right off the wall uh, because she was going to buy it. And then she found basically some uh, fabric hexagons that had embroidery patterns marked on them but had not been completed. Um, And she bought those up too. And she ended up finding more, more things out about this woman who was named Rita and she was a nurse and she had been embroidering her whole life, and uh, but basically, these hexagons with the patterns marked on them, there were a bunch of stars, and there was one for every state. Um, every state had, it had the state outline and the bird and the flower on it. <sighs> Sorry, I'm getting a cold and I can't breathe well enough to, t- to talk. Oh no, that's a mood. But basically, she looked at this huge project and was like, I can't finish <laughs> this all by myself. <laughs> So she put out a call on Instagram, and different embroiders all over the United States each took one, and they did the embroidery, and they sent it back to her, and they had a big day in, I think, Chicago, where a bunch of people, a bunch of them got together um, once all the embroidery was done, and they hand-pieced the top of the quilt, and then she had, like, professional quilters volunteered to quilt it. And they were on the Kelly Clarkson show, and they're going to go on tour. It's this big unifying project, and it's really cool because it's, I mean, I don't know if you guys, if I've talked about this before, but I do a lot of sewing. That's my hobby, and one of the things I do to, like, decompress. (laughs) So I do a lot of quilting. I do a lot of, even though there's a lot of cursing when there's sewing going on, like it's not, (laughs) there's a lot of swearing. Basically, I don't know, I really liked the project because it is an opportunity to talk about like the value of women's labor and like art that women make specifically. And also like a chance for me to examine like this hobby and this thing that I love because Shannon Downey is an activist, kind of, I think a lot of the main media outlets are kind of like, oh, isn't it great that in this divisive time, all these women can come together and work on this project that's like about this patriotic United States stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think Shannon Downey is kind of like, well, we should probably, <sighs> we should probably talk about like how white this project has been. And like, she's white. Yeah. And, like, how the efforts of women of color, because the thing is, like, probably all cultures have some sort of textile-based art form in it, and a lot of them have embroidery traditions. They might not all look the same as whatever European traditions that got carried over to America, And, and a lot of cultures probably have quilting traditions that maybe don't look like, you know... The European quilting tradition that came over to America. There is this group of African American women in a place called G's Bend who have like their very own quilting tradition that has become very famous. 
But, like, Shannon Downey at Badass Cross-Stitch is basically like, can we take a second to talk about, like, the intersection of, like, race here because, because this project is so white? And, like, why? Why is that? And I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I participate in this thing that is predominantly white women, at least online, uh, on Instagram. And I think you see a little bit more diversity in the quilting, or I'm sorry, not the quilting, in the embroidery community than you do in the quilting community. That's just my personal opinion, and it could be wrong. (laughs) But I don't know. It was just a nice opportunity to see, like, this good positive project that still like gave some thought to its underpinnings of like how does race and class and gender expression like filter into this this activity and this community of women and like I think as a group a large group of white women we maybe don't want to talk about that (laughs) normally yeah I I definitely think that's that's the case like it's it's kind of gotten to a point i think with a lot of white women and like i i know people like this fuck i'm probably like this some of the time (laughs) where you just don't you're so exhausted by the shit you have to go through being a woman you don't want to interrogate how that's ultimately relative to how like every other woman who isn't white lives And even though a lot of times that interrogation is ultimately necessary, because sometimes you're you're just sounding like a bitch, (laughs) and sometimes you just need to not complain about things that are ultimately a small problem. Doesn't mean they're not problems, it just means they're other people got different ones. We're living in, hopefully, an era where those conversations are not becoming as intimidating, I think, to people. And people are being expected to have those conversations at some point. Hopefully in a way that is not inherently confrontational. I don't think it is in this in this instance, of course. But yeah, that is something that is one of those things you you don't, if you have the luxury to, you don't think about as, like, sewing to me is like, oh, that's just a thing women do. But in reality, like, like you said, it's a lot of overtly white communities, whether like and i don't have a good answer as to why that is i have ideas of class and like skills getting passed down and leisure time and all that stuff and i suspect because i'm also a part of a very white profession that at some point the saturation level just becomes so overwhelming it's like i don't belong here and belonging here is hard because yeah you know, there's no one that looks like me, there's no one that has these experiences that I have, and no one here, a lot of the time people don't make the effort to try. Right. And I think that's something, like, we're trying to get better at, but it's also, like, how do you, how do you make a space welcoming to people of color when it's predominantly white? Like, you just, you can't kick all the white people out. (laughs) Right. Like, like that's kind of where I'm at in my journey into academia. I am currently finishing up uh, several applications to PhD programs. And that's something I, I think is, I continually think is important to think about, is as much as I kind of rail against the perversion of literary academias by men for men, 
there is so many different levels of intersection to that that are important because there there's no point to making it all white women. It's like the whole thing about how like Margaret Thatcher isn't girl power. <laughs> I, that that doesn't concisely explain anything, but I I I remember someone having to tell that to somebody. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher isn't girl power. Like there's no point in having people who are not white men in charge if nothing ultimately changes, especially with white women. Yeah. Like, if we're all just subjugating people to the same shit, then you're complicit in everything. Like, right. that's just kind of how it is. And that, I think, is is a conversation. I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to say this, but I don't really think there is. That's a conversation I think a lot of white women just aren't ready to have. Mm-hmm. But, like, you, you can't wait until people are ready. Yeah, you really do have to force that issue. I guess I would recommend reading... Like if you're if you don't feel ready, I don't know. Read Bitch Planet. Make make an effort. <laughs> no, that's real. That's absolutely real. Like the, I I just read it and I'm like, wow. I wish I had found this like when it came out. I know. I love Bitch Planet. That was really cool t- to see. Like I don't know the reality of a lot of situations. Like mm-hmm. and that they actually talked to people who weren't. You know what I mean? They had yeah. consultants. They made an effort. That was cool. So, <sighs> well, well, that is ten things from 2019 that we just did. That is it. Uh, we scraped it together. Yeah, but we got there in the end. I'm not sad to see 2019 go. No, get out. <laughs> get out. 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 So just. Uh, As Hannah said earlier, just to kind of recount, we are not ready to commit to any sort of consistent schedule at this time. We are going to be making an effort to continually produce things for the podcast. That may not always be audio, audio content, but we are still going to be here. Um, We do have a topic for the next audio episode picked out still, I think, right? Is it into the Spider-Verse? We're going to try. I think we were still planning to do Spider-Verse. Yeah, we're going to try. We promised that that would happen. So eventually it will. <laughs> eventually it will happen. Eventually you guys will hear me just chatter on and on and on and on about Miles Morales and the history of the Spider-Man series and all that good stuff. But yeah, I, I think this is probably around where we should wrap up. It's been really nice to kind of get back, get back in front of the mic and and stuff like that even if it it took us a lot of it took a lot of time for us to get here because (laughs) life is terrible yes hopefully next year will not be so terrible there's one thing um i wanted to mention just because it reminded me of sort of why we started the podcast so for christmas my mom's she's my friend too but you know how it is when you're old enough for your mom's friends to be your friend your friends (laughs) so my mom's friend lisa got us all these mugs for Christmas that uh, have something uh, like a, like a part of a quote on them. And then it's like XO comma. And then the last name of the person who has the quote. And the one she got me was scattered joy XO Emerson. And I was like, Oh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. That's why she got it for me because English nerd. And I finally looked up the full quote yesterday. 
and I wanted to bring it up. There is no beautifier of complexion or form or behavior like the wish to scatter joy and not pain around us. Oh. And I think that that's the 2020 resolution I want us all to kind of carry forward. Scatter joy and not pain. Mm 